Heavenly Father, it has become apparent to me that as I prepared this message, that there is a huge disparity between who you are and who I am. But Lord, I come to you this morning asking that you would set aside this broken vessel, that you would cover me with the grace of Jesus, and that the words that come out of my mouth be your words, that someone here might be encouraged along the way, might walk closer to you, and might cling to you, Father, in times of trial. Bless our time here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the original language, mercy is actually goodness. Mercy and goodness are often used together and interchangeably in Scripture many times. Just do a word search. It's funny, or maybe not so funny, that whenever tragedy strikes, like illness, uh, disease, death, um, natural disasters, I find myself using this expression, mercy, mercy God, have mercy. Have you guys ever used that expression before? Lord, have mercy right? And it feels like, you know, it seems, it just seems like I've been saying that a whole lot the last couple of weeks with all of our shootings and everything that's going on. Mercy, Lord, have mercy. It sounds like if I look at that phrase, it sounds as if I'm, I'm asking God to back off. Like I got to remind God to have mercy, But look at this. The Bible says that he keeps, it says keeping mercy for thousands. So why doesn't it say having mercy for thousands? Which is also true. It says he keeps mercy for thousands. And that to me is a salient point. He keeps it. A perpetual offering. Unmerited favor in your favor. He keeps it out there. He doesn't take it back. It sounds like there's this element, this language of permanence in his keeping, his mercy. Now, I know God has his limits. I understand that. But it's in the language. You hear it there. And it's for thousands. Thousands. Listen, in the Bible, the word billion and million, those are, those are modern words. They don't, exi- uh, the word, they don't exist in antiquity. They don't exist in the Bible. So when the writer writes, when you see phrases and words like thousand or thousands or 10,000 times 10 times 10,000, what do you think the writer is trying to convey? A lot, right? Sometimes even infinite, infinite value. David wrote, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth for how long? Forever. Forever. Psalm 118, 1. The psalmist, giving a recount of God's consistent mercy, evidenced from creation to his day, from creation to the day of David, he penned the words to Psalm 136, and he ended every single verse in that chapter with the words, His mercy endureth forever. Unmerited favor endures forever. I think David gets it. I think he gets it. Now I close my brief summary on mercy because I want to get back to goodness. It's not uncommon 
in, uh, in a church to hear the pastor, this banter between the pastor and his congregation. You hear this exchange, and you've heard it before. The pastor says, God is good, and the congregation says? And then, he, and then he says, all the time, and the congregation says? God is good. God is good, right? So, God's goodness. God is abundant in goodness. But relativism is the rule of the day today. We hear people say, well, that's true for you, but not for me or that's good for you but it's not good for me and and those may be true statements but I'm not sure that God intended his goodness to be for some and not for others or in some measure for some and a different measure for others often in the Bible his goodness was proportional to how we responded to his goodness but in the proper context God was and is consistently good. I want to talk a little something about habits. Ellen White wrote this, this quote, which I think has been corroborated and verified in, uh, in medicine, right? Never forget that thoughts work out actions, repeated actions form habits, and habits form character. Christian education. So, this right here is don't Jorge Bilicic. He is my father-in-law of Yugoslav descent. Any Yugoslav folk here? No? Okay. I love this man. Some of you have met him on some of his visits. He's a good man. He doesn't have an enemy in the world. He's a creature of habit, as you would expect at the age of 88. He takes care of you while you're under his roof or while he's under your roof or whatever. If he's around, you're not lifting a finger, which is why I love to have him around. (laughs) But service is one of his greatest uh, attributes. Decades of doing the same thing every day the same way. So this is his breakfast routine. A little mate. You guys know what mate is? Mate is this little drink, this tea that South Americans, um, you know, in varying degrees are very fond of, right? A little tea, a little powdered milk, a little sugar, a little cup, a, little, a couple flakes of corn. And he, he does this every single day. And I don't know how he does it because that's all he eats, this little cup right here. So that that buys me about 25 minutes in the morning, and that's all, and I'm hungry again. But he does this every single day, every one of these steps repeated, every single day. He was probably wondering, he was wondering why I was taking so many pictures. (laughs) I didn't tell him that he was going to be an illustration for my message today. Every one of these steps repeated like clockwork for years. You take this man to IHOP for a pancake breakfast, and you have messed him up. Like, he is, he is, his demeanor is completely distorted the rest of the day. His behavior, his character, he's not in a good mood. I took him out of that sequence of, of habits, of repeated actions. So, I was wondering, can I apply this to God? We see thoughts. Actions, repeated actions, habits, 
and then habits forming character. I tried to stretch this one out, but I think I, I, think I, got, I got something. We know that God has thoughts. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God has you on the mind. Desire of ages, just a couple things here in red. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. He was the word of God, God's thought made audible. And this was the stage, the universe. God thinks about you. He has thoughts, and you are in those thoughts. What about repeated actions? I'm just going to stick to Genesis chapter 1. You could literally do this throughout the entire Bible. Genesis 1, uh, there was light, there was seas, vegetation, sun, moon, stars, animals, everything. God looks back, and everything he made was? It was good. And indeed, very, very good. And of course, what about habits? You know, a definition of habit, according to uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is a settled tendency or unusual manner of behavior, an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary. So Psalm 52.1 says, The goodness of God endures continually. I see God has some habits. You guys still with me? Amen. So what's your relationship with goodness today? Are you a good person? Are you abundant in goodness? When you see that homeless person on the street, mercy, mercy, huh? Are you abundant in goodness? Let's see what the Bible says about human goodness. It says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as the morning cloud. And as the early dew, it goes away. It sounds pretty fleeting to me. And you say, well, what does that have to do with me? Because that was for Judah and that was for Ephraim. That had nothing to do with me. So you got to sometimes take your name and plug it into the text, right? So, O Teddy. That could be any Teddy. O Ryan. It could be any Ryan. What shall I do unto thee? And then your goodness is as the morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. We have fleeting goodness, and often it's not even auto-inspired. It doesn't come from within. It's usually skewed with bias and selfishness, even our goodness. Goodness gets a bad rap in modernity. Consider, if you will, the words of Isaiah 5.20, where it says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Is this where we are today? I can't hear you. (laughs) Yeah, mercy indeed. Culture, society, media, all have flip-flopped the concepts. We see this in the way we talk. For instance, if I say that Tom Brady is a bad man, that Michael Jordan is a bad man, that Donald Trump is a, wait, that's, 
Let me dial that back. I'm not talking politics this morning. But you get my point. The word bad is actually good in our terminology these days. Today, TV shows and movies are produced so that often the viewer is prompted to root for the bad guy <clears throat> while wishing for the good guy to be destroyed. Little Light Studios, a group of guys who actually came from PUC, went straight to Hollywood, left Hollywood, and actually do documentaries now, kind of exposing all these little details that movie producers plug into their movies to change the way you think, to change your character, to mold your character. And they do a series of documentaries that kind of expose these things. If you're interested in seeing some of those, I mean, we can talk later. Let me know. That's a great ministry, and I've been blessed by it significantly. But we can cite many examples of things that were once considered good and are now considered bad, and vice versa. Views on faith, views on society, government, lifestyle, and human development, views on health. You might be, most of you might be too young to remember this. Tobacco, right? Tobacco was a hit with the medical profession. I like this first image where it says your T-zone will tell you. From your commissure to your commissure and your throat, tobacco was thought to be protective. Protective. Can you imagine that? I'm so happy that Medi that, the med that medicine today figured out that smoking was bad, and we knew who was saying a long time ago that smoking was, smoking was an insidious poison. She's a little ahead of her time. But you can see the good-bad paradigm shift makes things confusing today. Isaiah's warning, his woe, still stands. When the Bible says that God is abundant in goodness. Can you see how some might be confused when they read the Old Testament and they see a God that is vindictive and angry and, and wiping out uh, entire communities, cities, towns, people, women, children, cattle? I can see how that could be misconstrued because it's easy to see a God who wiped out the entire Egyptian army, right, in the sea, and forget that he also sent Moses to talk to Pharaoh to let my people go ten times. God is a God of balance. God is a fair and just and good God. Amen? Amen. Our picture of God, to a large degree, determines how we live our lives. If we think God is severe and judgmental, we become more like that. You guys, this is not original thinking here. You've heard this statement before. It's because I didn't come up with it. If we think God is as think of God as gracious and self-sacrificing and good, we become more like that. We become like the God we worship. My character becomes like the God that I behold, like the God that I admire. So why pursue goodness? God's goodness saves. Romans 2, 4 says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads, not leaders, leads thee to repentance, right? And we know that in the process of salvation, there has to be some repentance. Psalm 34, 8 is what the, the, the psalmist challenges us to do 
as we wrap up goodness or this goodness section. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Have you put God's goodness to the test? Have you prayed and said, God, show me your goodness? Have you used that, those words? God is abundant in goodness. He's also abundant in truth. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is a rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. It's funny, I have some patients sometimes that, that come uh, for surgery, and of course they have their surgery, surgical gown, which allows me to see some of the tattoos on their, around their neck or on their other body parts. And I see often this tattoo that says, God is my judge, Right? Sounds like someone who's felt the judgment of others probably a lot in his life. But even that guy recognizes that God is a rock, right? And that God, when he judges, he judges right. And he judges correctly. How important to you is it that God is a God of truth? That everything he stands for is truth. Not just truth, but abundant truth. So where do we find truth? John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all. Are we part of all? Yeah? So when you open up this book, the truth that you find in here, oh no, that's, that's culture from the old world, Right? That's not applicable to me. Remember, God doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. And neither can lie. So, God's word says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is truth. John 17, 17. And every word of God is pure. So God's word is truth. And God's word is pure. Why do we pursue truth? Well, he shall abide before God forever. Speaking of you and me. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which preserve him. Truth is the elixir for deception. Are we surrounded by deception today? Do you think it's a worthy endeavor to to cement God's truth in your heart? Now, speaking of myself this morning, if you happen to be listening, that's on you. So, the wisest king that ever lived said, buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Proverbs 23, 23. We shouldn't only buy the truth. We should kind of have a love for the truth. And that's distinct. That's different. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And that I highlighted that word received, because it's not just there flippantly or arbitrarily. There is a reason that we don't generate this love ourselves. Even the love for the truth God gives us. Amen? 
that speaks to me of a God who's good. God gives you the love. Lord, I don't have a love for the truth. I don't have a love for this word. Give me that love. God says, I'll give it to you. That's a good God. So we know that truth is hard to come by these days. Daniel 8.11 talks about speaking of the little horn power, the antichrist power. Um, this is obviously not a study about them, but the little horn power says, or should I say Daniel 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 11 and 12 says it casts down the truth to the ground. And so when I think about that, I often think that in the, in the religious world, often it's not whole truths that are cast to the ground, it's partial truths, which are even more sly and more cunning because that little teaspoon of arsenic in your orange juice makes the whole glass poison. When Jesus was being interviewed by Pilate, um, Jesus tells him, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And then Pilate comes back with, what is truth? We hear that all the time. Relativism. It surrounds us every day. We have to deal with this as Christians. Relativism. And then in Matthew 24, 4, you remember that Jesus was rejected for the last time, he left the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem and he said, your house is left unto you desolate, right? He's rejected, dejected. He goes up to the Mount of Olives. And from that vantage point, the disciples surround him and try and cheer him up. Lord, look, look at how beautiful the temple is. Cheer up. It's not all bad. Um, and so on. And, and, and Jesus, what does he say? He says, hey, you see that temple? Verily, verily, I tell you that not one stone shall be left upon another, speaking, of course, of the destruction of Jerusalem. So the disciples naturally say, no, 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 he can't be talking about the destruction of this temple unless he's talking about the end of the world. So they ask Jesus, hey, so what is it going to be like in the end of the age, at your coming? What are things going to be like? And Jesus goes on to say, well, there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be pestilence and earthquakes and floods is that what comes out of Jesus' mouth first? The first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, be ye not, what? Deceived. Tells me that in the end of time, of course he's talking about the end of time, there's going to be a lot of that around. There's going to be a lot of that. So Facebook is out there. Instagram is out there. All media, TV, movies, everyone out there <laughs> is lying to you, either with whole truths or half-truths. And if that's not enough, guess who else is really good at lying to you? <clears throat> Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man, if it's not enough that I'm surrounded all the time by deception everywhere I go, my heart's doing the same thing. Does anyone know what this plant is called? Anyone? Anyone? Yes? Close. It's in the family of the Venus flytrap. It's actually called a, it's called a pitcher plant, right? And so I googled, um, uh, the heart is desperately wicked, or de desperate, is deceitful above all things. And so what came up was this picture with, with this, often they put out a, a leaf over the opening that looks like a heart. And so the fly comes, or even small wildlife creatures like toads, small frogs, they come here, oh, how pretty, look at the lips, they're so beautiful. 
and they sit there and the, of course the plant secretes the sticky so they, they can't get away from the sticky and they slide down deeper and of course it has some digestive fluids inside this well down here inside the belly and they fall in there and they slowly decompose and the plant gets a meal. It's the pitcher plant. Stay away from it. <clears throat> so, my heart is lying to me. My emotions are not all that pure or reliable. Are yours? The world tells you, follow your heart. Oh, just listen to your heart. Can you rely on your heart? And I believe that there's a difference between your heart and your gut. Okay? Your gut's churning and turning and thinking and processing, right? Whereas your heart just feels. <laughs> so follow your gut, and hopefully God's in that process. But think twice about your heart. Just my thoughts. How's your relationship with truth this morning? How important is truth to you? If it's anything like mine, it's probably a love-hate relationship. You've heard these sayings, true friends stab you in the front. I like that. The truth is the truth whether you believe it or not. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Obviously, when someone says this, it's because they're facing a bunch of lies and they know it. The truth hurts. And of course, the one that gets me in trouble all the time with my wife. Nobody wants to hear the truth. Of course, I'm usually trying to impart the quote-unquote truth when I say that to her, and it gets me in trouble. So regardless of your opinion of him, one of the slickest self-preserving thing, things that our current president did from the outset of his administration, and again, this is not a political statement, whether you're on this side or on that side. And a word of caution for some of you. Look, the Bible says that God sets up and he takes down. Okay? So don't get so wound up with all this political nonsense. Like God's in control of this situation. All right? I, I say that because, yeah, you guys know Facebook. You guys know. I took an exit of Facebook five years ago, and I can't tell you how happy I've been. <laughs> but don't get caught up. But one of, the, one of the smartest things that he did was that he brought into doubt every piece of information that you got. Right? particularly on issues that didn't agree with him, right? And, were, and he virtually coined the phrase fake news. So then where could you possibly get the truth with regard to the goings-on in the world, right? If every news media outlet is fake. In theory, he then would be the exclusive and sole author of true news or truth. And that's interesting. You could be critical of that, but we're not much different. To some extent, we like the truth when it agrees with us, and we don't when it doesn't. God is nothing like this. Amen. By way of example, I have struggled with my weight most of my life, right? When I was young, I remember my mom would go to the department store at the beginning of the school year, and she'd be like, all right, we have to go to the husky section. What? <laughs> Husky's a dog, man. I'm not going to go to that section, all right? I want to go to the, you know, tall and slender, of course, which I am not. But let's go to the husky section, and that word just, oh, grinds on me to this day. 
But anyway, I have a fitness habit, but I also have a heat, an eating habit too, right? Every now and then someone sees me come in, and I don't know if I might be standing in a different light or a different angle, but they're like, hey, Carlos, you're looking slimmer these days. That looks good. Good on you. Good on you. And I start, well, yes, yes, I do look slimmer, <laughs> right? Start puffing up my chest, sucking in my gut. And I'm like, yes, I do, knowing good and well that my pants are still fitting the same. <laughs> I still have to go to that fourth, that fourth belt loop instead of the fifth. But I take that compliment and I ride it for days, sometimes even weeks, because it feels good. But you know what I don't do? I don't pull out the scale, because you know what the scale represents? <laughs> Have mercy. I don't want to hear the truth. I don't want the truth to burst my bubble. So I hate the truth but also love the truth, because nobody likes to be lied to. I both love and hate the truth. But with God, what you see is what you get. Amen? Amen. God is mysterious, yeah, maybe. In time, he'll show you. But in a way, he's not. He doesn't flip-flop. Not like us. He tells us, this is who I am. And by contrast, I'm going to tease my lovely wife because... Well, because she's not here. And thanks to Audioverse, I'm still going to pay for it. So I've already prepared the doghouse because here I go. But this was us two weeks ago. <laughs> and that is a lie. Two weeks and 14 years ago. Maybe 16 years ago. I know, right? She is so pretty. And I remember I saw her eyes and I was just like, whoa, I got to lock down those eyes. And so I proposed to her and she hates this picture. This is our engagement picture. She hates this picture because, I mean, the smolder. I mean, who can, it's, <laughs> the smolder is intense. Like, you guys are all feeling something looking at this. And I love the way her eyes look. And she's, you know, they're, and again, if the lights were a little more dim, but you would see that they're nice, hazel colored. And I said, man, she said, yes. And then on this day, I got those eyes to commit to me for the rest of my life. And I was like, amen. And then, boom, I never saw those beautiful eyes again because <laughs> she hides behind some glasses and she refuses to use contacts the rest of her life. So I feel like I was bamboozled, right? I got gypped. But seriously, you know, Daphne doesn't have a deceitful bone in her body. But aren't you glad that God is not like us? When we see how he describes himself in Exodus, and he does not and will not and cannot change, you can take that to the bank. Is that good with you? It gives me a more concrete understanding of his title, the great I am. God is abundant in truth. And why does that matter to me today? Well, Revelation 14.5 says, speaking John in vision, speaking of those who are redeemed, 
in heaven, saying, In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. You see, glory is character. Character is name. What's in a name? It says in Revelation 14.1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in, not on. It's not a tattoo. It's in their foreheads, in their mind. Revelation 22.4 says, And they shall see his face. Are you going to be there? Because I'll tell you what, I, this could be a room full of gangsters, and I could ask, hey, are you going to heaven? And I guarantee you every hand is going up. People think they're going to heaven. But it says, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Why does that mean anything to me? So in summary, Moses asked God, show me your glory. God shows Moses his attributes, his characteristics, his character. Character is synonymous with name. And in the end, those who are alive at the second coming will have the character of God. Those who follow the Lamb have God's name written on their forehead. You see, we're studying the character of God this month because it's hard to love someone you don't know. It's hard to love someone you don't know. These people that John sees in vision stand in the end of time. They have God's name on their forehead, in their foreheads, his character in their minds. They have the characteristics, listen to this, they have the characteristics that God uses to describe himself to Moses, including goodness, truth, and mercy, what we're studying today. So, what's your relationship with goodness, truth, and mercy this morning? Are these abundant traits in your life? Are you so connected with God that when you walk into the room, people are like, ah, I want that experience? What's your relationship with God this morning? How's his character being reproduced in your life? Are you letting him make those changes as you behold him? How's that going? I tell you, when I was preparing this talk, it was hard. It was real hard. When I say to you that I was struggling with some things that I hadn't seen in years, just this week, that God had put out of my life and somehow resurged as I'm preparing this talk. That's why I believe that this is an important topic for us to understand God's character in your life. Ellen White says that when the character of God is reproduced in his people, then what? He comes to take us home. I'm not really good at appeals because it's always like, oh, do I stand up? This guy's standing up. Should I stand up? I'm not going to do that to you this morning, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. If you want God to intensify that process, because God does it, you don't. God even puts the desire for change in your heart. If it's your desire, raise your hand this morning. If you want God, change my heart. Give me more goodness, more mercy, more truth in my life. Amen. Let me pray with you. Would you bow your heads this morning?
Oh, Father, we come to you this morning and I ask again, speaking of your holy character, that you would forgive me because I know that I'm a sinful creature, Lord. And I pray, Father, that it, through my mouth I was able to convey just a small smidgen of your character and how you want to imprint that character in us in indelible ink in our minds. Father, be with everyone here today. I just pray that you would be with every hand that was raised. Our desire is to be more like Jesus, to be more like you. Do that work. Give us the desire and do that work in us. We are incapable of doing it ourselves. But we want to be there. We want to be there with the 144. We want to be there in your presence with your character in our foreheads. Do that work in us, Lord. We thank you again for this, this time together. I pray a blessing over everyone here, Lord. Let no one be missing on that day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.